Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. Welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, and uh, hope you're having a great time wherever you happen to be. Um... You know, as we're nearing the end of the year and the beginning of a new year, I've got my wish list, my pet peeves of things that could easily be changed in the travel industry, whether it's airplanes, cruise ships, hotels, rental cars. And these are easy fixes, folks. And the reason why I know they're easy fixes is because when I bring them up to industry experts, people who actually work in these industries, they can't give me an answer why it wouldn't work other than, well, we've always done it this way. Is that acceptable anymore? Does the word because help you out? Why are you doing it? Because. No. I'll give you an example, okay? And it makes so much sense. We're in the winter months now. What's one of the biggest problems with planes? It's icing. How many times have you boarded a flight at the gate and you didn't push back because the plane had to be, for safety reasons, de-iced? So you look out the window and you see guys on big uh, cherry pickers with hoses, um, de-icing the plane with all these, you know, toxic chemicals. And then you're all set to go. Now you push back. Now you're in a line of 30 other planes. And by the time you're ready to take off again, it's time to get de-iced again. It makes absolutely no sense. Now, there's a very simple solution to this. And some airports overseas have tried it. Works like a charm. They've taken the control of the de-icing away from the individual airlines. They've made it part of a service provided by the airport. And where are they doing it? At the end of the runway. So it's like going through a car wash. You push back from the gate. You taxi down the taxiway. And right before you make the turn to go into the active runway, you go through basically what looks to be like a car wash. And the plane gets de-iced. And then you get to take off immediately because you're you're in great shape. Now... There's, there's so many compelling reasons to do this, one of which is that it's going to save time, two, it's safer, three, it's going to save money, and let's not forget number four. By keeping this one de-icing location open for all the airlines, but in only one location, you're able to capture all the toxic fluid and either store it properly, recycle it properly, but don't flush it down a sewer or a storm drain. It's great for the environment. This is a quadruple win, 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 win. Why aren't they doing it? I don't know. But that's one of my wish list items for 2017. Here's another one. And this one, it just drives me nuts. Okay? Let's assume you're on a perfect flight. It pushed it back from the gate on time. The weather is beautiful. You're on a brand new plane. It's got that brand new plane smell. You're sitting in your seat, rich Corinthian leather. 
uh, the plane is only half full, so you've got the seat next to you. There, there's actually decent food on board. The flight attendants are nice to you. Everybody's smiling. And then about 30 minutes out, the pilot says, will the flight attendants please prepare for an early arrival? Wow, this is your lucky day. My goodness, you're arriving early. How cool is that? Oh, you arrived early? Sorry, no gate available. And you wait for an hour. Now, here's the stupidity of this. There are no surprises in the airline business. From the moment you pushed back, the airline operations guys knew, the airport where you're pushing back from knew, and the airport where you're going knows exactly to the minute what time you're arriving. So it wasn't that you landed early and everybody in the tower went, oh my God, we had no idea. No, they knew it all. They just weren't prepared properly. So you wait for what? To be towed to a gate? No. You get wait to get towed to a jetway. Here's a little news bulletin for me, folks. We don't need your stinking jetway. We need a penalty box, which already exists uh, behind every gate, where a plane can adequately and safely park, roll up some portable stairs, and get us off the plane right away. It makes the most sense. On so many different levels again. Number one, baggage won't misconnect. Number two, passengers won't misconnect. Number three, a reduction in the fuel burn of that plane while it's waiting for a jetway. And it's easy peasy. Flight crews won't go illegal because they're stuck on a plane going nowhere, and people will figure it out that it actually does work. Nobody can tell me why. They're not doing it. And, and by the way, every major airport has these penalty boxes, for planes to park, so you're not, you're not losing anything. It's just crazy to me why more people won't do this at airports. Oh, speaking of airports, the one that is a declaration of war to me is this. Let's start with this premise, and I argue this, that nobody who ever designs an airport should ever be paid for their work until they actually had to fly out of that airport. As simple as possible. Very, it's as direct as possible. You got to do it. Because I'm convinced that the people who design airports have never flown. Never flown. I mean, think about this. Why do they put rocking chairs at airports? Because they're sending a message. You're going to be here a while. Is that the message you want? Let's go back to why airports exist in the first place. Airports don't exist for me to go to them or to entertain in them or to relax on them. Airports, from a functional perspective, only exist for one reason. For me to get through them to get to the flight I really want so I can get to where I want to go. So why would you be putting these gourmet restaurants in, in airports and all sorts of retail stores? It's the last thing I want to do. Get me in, get me out. However, the other pet peeve is this. Most people don't travel with a fanny pack, they travel with their luggage and they try to put everything in the carry-on that they can because they don't want to have to spend the money for checking the bag. Okay, I get all that. That means people are traveling with bags, right? They don't want to check them, right? People are schlepping. They're schlepping when they're leaving the airport. They're schlepping when they're arriving at the airport, whatever airport that is. So where do the morons put the baggage carts? They're all down in baggage claim after you've done the Bataan death march to go from your gate all the way to baggage claim. 
No, I'm not opposed to them charging for the carts, although I'm thinking that 6 or $7 is a little outrageous. But forgetting that, why don't they put the cart stands also at the gates so that when you walk off the plane schlepping all your carry-on, you don't have to walk for long distances unless you're taking the cart. And there are certain terminals that I'll give a shout-out to. Not a good shout-out, by the way, but a shout-out. How about Delta Airlines Terminal 4 in New York? That's the Bataan Death March. I mean, it's a relatively new terminal, and they didn't design it well. Either the people movers are too short, or they don't work, or both, which is what happened to me when I came back, uh, you know, from from uh, from Panama. Um, and that wasn't even Terminal 4. That was Terminal 5. So here's the thing. It's an easy fix. Okay, we can't change the basic design of the terminals, but we can adjust. We can actually put carts at gates so that people are not schlepping bags for a mile and a half. And by the way, when I say a mile and a half, I'm not exaggerating. There are certain parts of the Miami airport, if you have to change terminals, you will be walking a mile and a half. There is no doubt about it. Simple as that. And uh, so stay tuned on that one. Another one that's just a pretty good idea that I really wish people would think about. I'll give you one more. And, and uh, this is the, the same thing. And, and, it, and it bothers me because I see it every day. And by the way, you see it every day. The people listening to the show, you experience it every day. I'll start out with this. And, and this is my whole diatribe on, on, on restaurants. What's worse, a restaurant that doesn't take reservations and makes you stand in line, or a restaurant that doesn't honor reservations and makes you stand in line? Well, obviously, the winner here is the, is the latter. Why? Because a restaurant reservation is an implied contract, right? And restaurants are in breach of that contract every single day. You show up at 8 o'clock on time for your 8 o'clock reservation, and they say, sorry, uh, please have a seat at the bar. Now, are they really sorry? No. They're getting additional revenue that they otherwise wouldn't get because I'm sitting at the bar instead of sitting at my table. Now, here's the crazy part. Let's go back to this. A restaurant reservation is an implied contract. So if it's an implied contract and the table's not ready, the height of hospitality is that they offer to buy you drinks at the bar, right? It's as simple as that, but they don't. They make you go to the bar and you buy drinks for their mistake. Now, I believe that there should be some sort of a rule that, and, and by the way, I'm all in favor of, of asking you for a, asking me or you for a credit card when you make a reservation. If you make a reservation at a restaurant for 8 o'clock and you get there and the table's not ready, they buy you drinks. It'll get me to come back, right? Conversely, if you make a reservation for 8 o'clock and you don't show up on time, or even worse, you're a no-show, show, there's a penalty fee on your credit card because it's not fair to the restaurant. So think about that, Right? Restaurants are in breach of contract every day because they insist on reservations and then they don't honor them. There's got to be a way with consequences to make everybody work in in a hospitable way and stop making me pay for drinks at a bar where I never wanted to be in the first place, but I'm stuck there because you didn't keep your end of the bargain. All right, when we come back, speaking about keeping the end of the bargain, we'll be talking to the executive director of the Sierra Club, 
on what the new Trump presidency means or could mean to not only the environment, but to you. Back right after this. a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back. Peter Greenberg here with you on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. Uh, We're on the eve of a new president, uh, President-elect Donald Trump. And uh, as he's making his cabinet appointments, um, and of course, travel is a big deal for me and, and freedom to travel. And it's interesting to note uh, that when you go around the world, and as, we, as you know, I travel around the world and I meet with leaders around the world, uh, there's a certain degree of apprehension and confusion and worry about what a, what a Trump presidency is going to mean. Uh, I will share with you one story. Uh, the airline in Jordan, Royal Jordanian, um, was running an ad for discounted tickets to the United States. Uh, And by the way, there are a lot of discounted tickets to the United States right now because as a result of Brexit, the the turmoil in Italy with the resignation of the prime minister there, the power of the US dollar, which has surged about almost 5% in value over the last couple of weeks since the presidential election, the euro is almost at parity with the US dollar. Uh, There are a lot of empty seats. The Europeans uh, are not traveling which means that a lot of seats that would be filled as their return seats from the United States are now empty as our outbound seats. So there are travel deals everywhere. But here's the interesting thing. We know that it's the law of supply and demand. We know that there will be discounting, and there's tremendous discounting right now. It's a buyer's market globally right now, especially if you happen to be an American. But what I found interesting about this ad from Royal Jordanian Airlines is that when they did the ad, advertising discounted tickets to the United States. This was the wording in the ad. Go now while you're still allowed to. Isn't that interesting? Um, And I suppose that could apply to everything else, uh, whether it's Secretary of Transportation, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of, uh, I mean, or the the Director of the EPA. I mean, all the different positions that are being appointed uh, or nominated, I should say, uh, by President-elect Trump. And what does this mean for, for us as travelers? What does that mean for us as, as good citizens when we travel? What, you know, what, what can we expect? Not just globally, but right here in the United States. And joining me now, the executive director of the Sierra Club, uh, Michael Bruin. Hey, hey, Michael. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you heard my intro. I mean, it, 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 yeah. to say that we're living in a world of global uncertainty might be an understatement right now. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but from your perspective... You know, uh, you take a look at at, uh, uh, even the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, President-elect Trump meets with Al Gore, which I thought was, I mean, a a hopeful sign of at least being educated on what's going on out there, um, and then appoints an EPA chief who doesn't believe in climate change. Yeah, you know, we, uh, I think it's important to look look past the, deceptions and distractions. Uh, Trump, over the next few years, is going to be tweeting one thing and, and doing another, or saying one thing and doing another, or meeting with one person that might think uh, he has a certain set of beliefs or intended actions, and then doing the exact opposite. He is very good at misdirection. He's very good at 
um, you know, a little bit of deception as well. And when it comes to the environment, he has been very clear uh, and almost perfectly consistent through his actions at appointing people who have a strong and consistent record of being uh, working to undermine safeguards that would limit air pollution, water pollution, would help us to fight climate change, would help help to accelerate clean energy development. Uh, this is a, it's a very serious threat to the environment and a lot of the progress that we've made as a country over the last several decades. And yet, you know, if you look historically, uh, I go back to the days of Richard Nixon, who yeah. nobody would initially think would be a, a good steward of the environment. And yet, wasn't it Richard Nixon who started the EPA? It was Richard Nixon who started the EPA. It was George Bush, the first Bush, who signed the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act into laws. You know, like the Sierra Club, we, next year we're going to celebrate our 125th anniversary. And over more than a century, we have worked with Republican presidents, Democratic presidents. Uh, we have had anti-environmental presidents or people running different agencies. But we, uh, we have never... We have never in our history seen something like this, where every single person appointed to every agency, to lead every agency, either at the cabinet level or on the transition team, have a, a strong anti-environmental background. You know, let's just take the EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt. This is someone who has worked to undermine EPA authority generally, and who has worked to, he has opposed the laws that he would now be required by law to enforce. He tried to uh, weaken the safeguards that would limit soot pollution from coal plants and smog pollution and mercury uh, poisoning and even the air pollution in our national parks. He's taken all of these steps. When he's taken it to court, he's lost every single time on those issues, even in conservative courts. And now he would be the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, running an agency of thousands of people whose job it is, is to protect the public. This is, it's unconscionable, and uh, we're going to have to make sure that, it does, it's, that his appointment doesn't go through. Well, listen, we have, how do you make sure of that when you have uh, the Republicans having a majority in the House and the Senate? <laughs> it is hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we, uh, we are on the precipice of a, a great environmental breakthrough in the federal government. Um, what I'm saying is that nobody went to the poll on November 8th and said, you know, I really want more air pollution. I'm, I'm looking to have my watershed be poisoned by fracking. Nobody said that. And if you look at polls, if you do focus groups, if you talk to people, most people care about the environment. They're pretty fond of clean air and clean water. They like their parks. They like forests. They like to hunt or fish or camp or backpack. Whatever it is, they care about the environment, even if they don't call themselves an environmentalist. So we know that Congress is pretty closely divided. And to get his nomination through, uh, we're going to have to see some cooperation by both parties. Um, and we believe that there are Republican senators who um, may be up for election or who may know that their constituencies really do want clean air and clean water. And we, we believe that they uh, would be and should be open uh, to voting against uh, someone who clearly would be uh, running counter to their interests and the interests of their constituency. Well, the nomination notwithstanding, I mean, part of the mandate of the Sierra Club has to be and has always been education uh, yeah. and trying to educate the public as to not only what the situation is, but what their responsibilities are as individuals. Yes, indeed. 
Yeah. Yeah, a big part of the job. You know, the Sierra Club, we are run by volunteers, really. The, 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 the beauty of the Sierra Club is that we have members in every state, every county, every congressional district, in every part of the country. And in most places, it's Sierra Club volunteers. It's someone who writes a check for $30, wants to volunteer, and then they help determine what the priorities are for the environment in their own backyard, in their own town. Um, well, now what we're doing is we have had a flood of volunteers over the last month coming into Sierra Club offices, making donations. And we're seeing that because people want to, they want their voices to be heard. They want to stand up. They want to take a stand for uh, strong environmental values. And we need people to, to engage. We need people to take action at the local level, uh, even if that means uh, running counter to what they're hearing from the federal level. You know, so to give an example, 20 cities in the U.S. right now um, have made a commitment to have their entire city be powered by 100% clean, renewable energy. This is something that for many cities will take some years. For some cities, it will take a couple decades. Uh, but they are doing this because they're seeing uh, a lack of strong leadership coming from the federal government. We want to make that number 100 by the end of next year. We want to get hundreds of companies to be part of the solution for the environment rather than part of the problem. So there's a lot of the ways in which people can engage in their workplace, in their hometown, um, even as hopefully we're working together to prevent the Trump administration from trampling on the progress that we've made for so long. And yet, when you th- when you think about it, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but if you look historically, most presidents, whether they're on the right or the left, by the time they walk into that Oval Office, they start to move towards the center. Um, and you're seeing other heads of state, I mean, actively lobbying uh, President-elect Trump not to violate the Paris Climate Accords, uh, yeah. not not yeah. to mess with that, um, yeah. and and hopefully that'll have some effect. Let's hope so. You know, for, for years, we were making some small, steady progress in the United States and uh, on reducing the amount of carbon pollution, climate pollution. And what we heard from uh, most Republicans, actually, was that we've got to get the rest of the world involved. It, it, we can't all do this unilaterally. And so, to his credit, President Obama did a fantastic job at cajoling, inspiring, pushing China to set pretty strong climate standards, pushing India to set strong climate standards. And so now we're in the position where just about every country in the world, except for a couple failed states, more than 190 countries have all agreed to reduce the amount of pollution in their own countries, to scale up clean renewable energy, and to work together to fight this problem. When he takes office, Donald Trump will be the only and I mean this, the only head of state to question if climate change is real and whether humans have something to do about it. North Korea has a plan. It's not a great plan, but they have a plan to start to reduce their <laughs> climate pollution. I'm serious. By the, Somalia, by the way, by the way I got to tell you something. When, when anybody who starts a, a sentence with North Korea has a plan, I get worried. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. But what I'm saying is that, like, look, you know, I'm a patriotic person, but we have someone who's assuming the presidency who will be the only head of state who's denying, like, basic reality, basic science. This issue is not complicated. Um, My four-year-old is understanding, like, what's happening to the world. My fourth grader understands it a lot more. So the world is moving forward. The world is moving on. 
And we have a president who is burying his head in the sand, which, you know, it's not something you should do when the seas are rising. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, will you be coming to the inauguration? <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be invited. Um, I think I might just be staying home with my family and uh, working to make sure that we're ready when he actually moves into the Oval Office the next day. Well, you know, historically, again, economics usually tr- trumps politics. I hate to use the word Trump in that sentence, but economics does take precedence over politics. I'm assuming you guys can make a very strong economic case for oh, maintaining yeah. the Paris Accords. Yeah, that, that's what's been so great. It's really been over the last four years or so that uh, the economics of energy have shifted dramatically. You know, for years it was really hard because... We would talk about the moral imperative of climate change, and then we would have to confront the reality that solar and wind were more expensive uh, than fossil fuels. And that has changed. In most parts of the country right now, solar and wind are at equal, on par with, or cheaper than coal, than gas, than nuclear power. And those trends where clean energy gets cheaper and fossil fuels get more expensive are expected to continue. So the economics of addressing climate change are only going to get better. The question is, again, uh, whether the federal government, the new Trump administration and Congress will acknowledge that reality and invest in things that will make the, the broad economy strong, or whether they're just going to side with the ideologues who helped to sponsor Trump's campaign, who are now filling his uh, cabinet positions and who are so uh, determined to go back to a time when coal and oil and gas uh, dominated our energy landscape. Well, time will certainly tell. Uh, I will look forward to seeing what happens, and I'll be obviously monitoring, as you will, uh, the actions once the administration takes over on January 20th. Michael Brune, the executive director of the Sierra Club, thanks for joining us on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. (laughs) 